Good morning again. Um, my name is David. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at King's Church. And as we begin um, our time, as we begin our time together, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Please stand if you're able. We're going to be reading from Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 7. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads Hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, as we come to your word today, we come to a passage that is um, perhaps strange, perhaps odd, perhaps um, difficult to make sense of, perhaps frightening. And God, I pray that as we, as we go through it together, as we um, try to see the truth in it, that it would be more than just frightening, it would be life-giving, it would be encouraging, it would be convicting as we see your holiness and our sinfulness and the need for a better priesthood. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. In the history of failed beginnings, there are some famous products that failed spectacularly. For instance, in 1982, Colgate, the toothpaste brand, launched a line of frozen TV dinners. The logic was you could eat this Colgate meal and then brush your teeth afterwards with Colgate toothpaste. The problem was that, you know, when you saw the Colgate logo and, you know, brand on top of your TV dinner, it wasn't very appetizing. And another example, if you're into technology, these, there's a lot of hype these days about virtual reality, right? I'm sure you've seen people at the Microsoft store or whatever with the, the VR goggles on. But did you know that in 1995, more than two decades ago, Nintendo released Virtual Boy? I'm sure one of you at least have, you know, had that system, which claimed to give the virtual reality experience. The real reality was a very expensive system with low-resolution, 8-bit 
red and black graphics. That was a spectacular failure. And one more example, even more recent. In 1998, Frito-Lay released a line of chips with the WOW branding. Anyone remember this? Like Doritos WOW or Cheetos WOW. It was supposed to have all the flavor of regular chips while being nearly fat-free because of a miracle compound called Olestra. But the problem was that Olestra molecules were too large to be absorbed by the digestive tract and produced a result similar to a laxative. <laughs> Needless to say, the chips were quickly discontinued. <laughs> but when it comes to bad beginnings, the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 may beat out all the rest, even these wow chips, because Nadab and Abihu were supposed to start something new. They had just undergone a long series of rituals in the previous chapters of Leviticus to become priests. They were to serve as bridges between God and man. And on the very first day of this new priesthood, on what should have been a highlight in Israel's history, a day of reverent joy and celebration with people raising their hands and praising God, Nadab and Abihu instead brought unauthorized fire into the presence of God, and they instantly died. It said the fire of the Lord came out and consumed them. The new priesthood had gotten off to a very rocky start, to say the least. Now, this odd bit of Old Testament history is one of those passages you might read as you're working your way through the Bible, and you think, what was that all about? And then you just move on without a second thought. Yet, I believe that this passage can reveal and remind us of our sinfulness, God's holiness, and the need for a better priesthood in a fresh and powerful way. But before we explore those three points a bit more, it's important to set the scene, to gain a better understanding of the events that actually led up to Nadab and Abihu's fateful day when they were struck dead, and to kind of understand what was the whole purpose of this priest system, this priesthood, um, in the first place. Why, why did it even exist? And the first set piece we kind of have to roll on stage is the theme of presence. The theme of presence. The Bible is more than just an ordinary book. It's the Word of God, and it's more than just a piece of literature, but it still has wonderful literary qualities. And like a good story, it has many themes, it has many threads that run throughout Scripture that connect Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And one of these themes is a theme of presence. We know this because Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, the first people lived in paradise, the Garden of Eden. And what made it paradise wasn't just that there were animals that they could you know, live with or, or trees laden with fruit. But what made it paradise was that the presence of God was there. They could walk with him in the cool of the day. They, they were intimate with him. And when they broke God's law in Genesis 3, their judgment was to be thrown out of the garden. What they really lost that day was access to God's presence. That's really what was lost that day. And when we read the other end of the Bible, when we read Revelation, we, um, Jonathan Keenan preached on Revelation last week, the end is all about how God is once among living in the midst of his people. 
There's, there's a marriage supper, and more than that, he dwells in the presence. He is a light. There's no more need for the sun because God is in the midst of his people. So one way to read the Bible is to see it as a long history of how the presence of God is restored to mankind once again. Have you ever wondered, as you move from Genesis to Exodus, why are there so many chapters about constructing the tabernacle? Most people usually don't even get there, right? You read about the Ten Commandments, and then you start reading about how you have to build doors made of wood and, you know, weave these cloths made of, with blue thread and things like that. And you're wondering, what is that all about? It's not there just simply to discourage you from reading the Bible. Um, there's, there's much more to it. It's, it's because it was to prepare, because preparing a place for God to dwell among his people in the Old Testament was such an important thing because he is so perfect and there's so many aspects to who he is that there, there needed to be specific instruction to prepare a place for God to live in, in the tabernacle, in the great tent that was supposed to be God's dwelling place among the Israelites. And then when you come to Leviticus, you wonder, why are there so many detailed instructions about sacrifice? You, you read all through all these chapters, like, you know, you have to sacrifice this animal this way, and, you know, on this day, and then you have to do this and that. And what is that all about? Well, the whole point of the sacrificial system was a way for Israel to establish a relationship with God. And so imagine that you were an Israelite and you had seen months and months of preparation. You heard the saws and the chisels and the mallets um, early in the morning and late into the night. And you had listened to Moses' long speeches about law after law after law until your feet were tired and your eyelids were drooping. And so now... Finally, the day has arrived. The whole nation has gathered together for the establishment of the priesthood in Leviticus 8 and 9. And this was a really, really big deal. All the preparation that these people had gone through, all these plans were finally coming to fruition. God was finally going to come and dwell among his people. And through the priests and the sacrificial system, now people could finally approach God and be made right with him. And God's presence is, after all, what made Israel special. They were the chosen people because God had chosen to live among them and to have this special relationship with them. But something goes terribly wrong, terribly, terribly wrong with Nadab and Abihu as they bring unauthorized fire into the presence of God, and it threatens to put everything into jeopardy. So as we come to our text today, I want us to draw three points from this tragic story. The first point is this. Don't underestimate your sinfulness. Don't underestimate your sinfulness. Verse one. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, what exactly did Nadab and Abihu do wrong that led to their death? Now, there's a lot of debate, as I did my research, there's a lot of debate over the centuries about what was the reason. The Jewish rabbis offered 12 different explanations for why they died. However, I'm not going to go through all 12. 
I think the simplest explanation that the text give us, gives us is the best. Their sin was that they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now, some of your translations might say strange fire or profane fire. What exactly was this unauthorized fire or what made their fire strange or profane? The Bible doesn't explicitly outright tell us, but priests, when they were entering the tabernacle, they had to carry censers, which were basically these small lantern-like pots that could be hung from a pole or carried by hand. And they were specifically used to burn incense, to create an aroma that was, as the Bible says, pleasing to the Lord. And biblical scholars generally agree that Nadab and Abihu, what they did, this unauthorized fire, was that they had taken coals from elsewhere, from besides the altar, which was the only place where they were supposed to take coals and to put into those censers. And they had taken it from, I don't know, maybe their campsite or some other place, and they, they had put it into those censers and approached God with them. Leviticus 16.12 says this. This is the specific instruction that they most likely violated. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. But lest we miss the point, the bigger problem wasn't that the fire came from the altar or from somewhere else, but they had done something that God had not commanded them to do. They had done something that God had not commanded them to do. And you would think that Nadab and Abihu would know better. You would think that having Moses as an uncle, whom the Bible consistently praises for his humility and obedience to God, would have influenced them to obey God faithfully. Or that their privileged position as priests for the whole nation, as people who had the honor of approaching God in a way that no one else could, who served as a go-between, a mediator for the common Israelite, an almighty God, you would think that these, out of all the people, that they would be the ones who would model wisdom and careful observance of the law. You would think that all the detailed instruction that they had received about sacrifice, about sacrifices in just the prior chapters of Leviticus would have impressed upon them the idea that you can't just do whatever you want in the presence of God. Nadab and Abihu had all the advantages, all the upbringing to not do what they did. They were like the kids of an NBA star. Imagine, imagine LeBron's kids or something. They have all the genes of height and strength. They have the financial resources to afford the very best education and physical training, the one-on-one tutoring. They have all the connections to get the best positions on the, on the best youth teams. And yet, Nadam and Abihu fell flat on their faces when game time began. This story powerfully illustrates that the human heart is exceedingly sinful. Its natural bent is to oppose God, to not obey his commandments, to rebel against him, to think in pride that it knows better than God. We cannot rely on privilege, position, background, upbringing to keep us from sin. While there are certainly advantages to being raised in the Christian family, I was also raised in the Christian family, 
to be taught scripture at an early age, it is not a firm foundation to stand upon. Sin, our rebellion against God, is deep in the human heart, and no one is immune, not even sons of the high priest and the nephews of Moses. So we too, we who are here today, we need to take care, lest we too also fall. Regardless of whether you've been a Christian for a long time or just a year, if you're in positions of leadership, or if you grew up with Christian parents, or you really know your theology, that's not where we place our trust. That's not what will keep us from sin. We must also be vigilant and on guard so that sin does not take root in our hearts and make us hardened towards God and his commands. As priests, Nadab and Abihu should have been repeatedly reminded of sin. They slit the throats of animals upon animals during the inauguration ceremony in Leviticus 8 and 9. The blood that flowed like rivers down the altar should have been a powerful visual to drive home the point that so much blood was needed to make things right with God because of the way that we are exceedingly sinful, the way we worship idols and rebel against him. Yet their hearts neglected to notice the pervasiveness of sin and were hardened against these powerful reminders. I want to ask you today, where have you grown neglectful or callous towards God's commands? Have you allowed sin to take root in small places in your heart? Perhaps it's greed or desiring what someone else has. Or perhaps it's growing bitter towards someone who has wronged you. And maybe you've seen someone's sin vividly on display, whether it's another parent's harsh word towards a child or someone who has abandoned their faith or a public sexual indiscretion and then thought, that will never happen to me. Have you ever thought that? Nadab and Abihu remind us that no one is immune from sin, so we must not underestimate our own sinfulness. We'd be wise to heed the words of pastor and theologian, John Owen, who said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. God calls us to live lives of repentance, daily turning away from our sin and clinging to Christ in faith. But not only did Nadab and Abihu underestimate their sin, they had another big problem that led to their death. They didn't take the holiness of God seriously. That's my second point. Take the holiness of God seriously. Take the holiness of God seriously. So first off, what is the holiness of God? To be holy means to be set apart. And God the creator is fundamentally different from us. We who are his creatures. He is totally unlike us. Unlike us, he is perfect in love, in justice, in mercy. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's uncreated. He's not dependent on anything. R.C. Sproul, in his modern classic, The Holiness of God, puts it this way. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He's separate from us in such a way that it is more like a difference of kind rather than degree. Let me help you 
let me, let me illustrate this point. When I was younger, I had an obsession with fighter jets. Every time I went to the library, I would check out every book on fi fighter planes I could get my hands up on. Maybe some of you have kids that are like this way too. Um, you know, I would read about all the planes in World War II, from the P-51 Mustangs to the P-38 Lightnings, all the way to the more modern fighters, such as the F-14s, um, the F-15s and 16s, and I would know their specs inside and out. And one way I judged an airplane's superiority was its top speed. Now, there are some really fast planes out there that go Mach, Mach 2 and Mach 3, and there are even rocket-powered experimental jets, such as the X-15, which, which reached Mach 6.7, or which is approximately 4,500 miles per hour. Pretty fast. But then there's a speed of light, which travels at a mind-bogglingly mind 671 million miles per hour. Compared to our fastest vehicles, the speed of light is on a whole other level. It's next level, as some people might say. It's transcendentally separate in comparison. That transcendental difference between the speed of our man-made vehicles and the speed of light is but a poor comparison of the difference between us and God. It's, it's a poor comparison of what the holiness of God truly means. Holiness informs every aspect of God and how we understand him. So when we talk about God's love and justice, we must always remember that his love and justice is not normal love and justice. It's holy love and justice. That means it's a love and justice that's far beyond even the most impressive examples of human love and justice. So when God is holy in purity in his moral perfection, you can bet that it's a transcendental, next-level purity. 1 John 1.5 says this, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And given that God is holy in purity, in moral goodness, his very presence is deadly to sinners. His justice and purity is so great that it must instantly judge and destroy sin. It's as if you put a sun into a dark room. No matter how dark that room is, it would suddenly be filled with blazing light. It's not that the sun is specifically targeting the darkness or impurity. It's just the sun being the sun. And that's why in verse 2 of Leviticus, of Leviticus 10, our passage for today, it says, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. When the presence of God comes into contact with sin, complete destruction is only keeping with the nature of God's holiness. Elsewhere in Exodus 33:3, after the people had rebelled against God by worshiping a golden calf, God says this to Israel, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way for you are stiff-necked people. God knew that at that time, it, that if his presence came into contact with this stubborn, wayward people, they would be destroyed. Now, as priests, Nadab and Abihu should have known this all too well. The whole point of all the laws in Leviticus was to establish rules for purity so that God could live among his people without them being destroyed. That's why there's so many rules. 
God was giving them a way to have a relationship with him. And the reason that God had all these rules and regulations wasn't just to make things difficult or because he's unreasonably demanding, but it's because he is so holy and we are so sinful. The gap between us and God is one of infinite distance. And yet, God has always desired to close that gap, to give us himself because he is very life and goodness itself. But Nadab and Abihu failed to take the holiness of God seriously. They approached him carelessly, and underneath their carelessness was a proud heart because they thought they could approach him in their own way, that they could bring unauthorized fire into his presence. At the root of their attitude was the same sin as Adam and Eve, who questioned the commandment of God that forbid them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both Adam and Eve and Nadab and Abihu reversed the roles of creature and creator. They flipped them. They saw themselves as superior to creator God, able to judge whether God's commands were worth keeping. Nadab and Abihu thought along these lines. God has commanded us to only bring this type of fire into his presence, but I know better. His words are not that important. It's fine to do it my way. On the surface, this seems innocuous, harmless, but it is arrogance of the highest order. When we consider God's holiness, his perfect character, his perfect commands, his infinite love, mercy, justice, goodness, how can we possibly think that we know better? But yet, we do. We become like Nadab and Abihu every time we indulge in a little sin. It's all right for me to steal a little bit of time at work. It's all right for me to lie to my spouse a little bit. It's all right for me to let my lustful gaze linger a little bit. It's all right for me to idolize my children, my career, my wealth just a little bit. And lest we think that we're off the hook because we're not priests like Nadab and Abihu, the truth is that the church is now the new priesthood of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and here he's speaking about the church, a people for his, own, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are representatives of God to the world, to those who don't know Christ. And as Moses says to Aaron in Leviticus 10.3, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. For those who are near God, who serve him as priests, which is every Christian, our call is to sanctify God, to make him holy. Not because we add to his holiness in any way at all, but because he chooses to reveal his holiness through us. Why he would use us in such a way is a mystery, but it's humbling, and it's a high calling. So the question then is this, are you taking God's holiness seriously today? For those of us who are Christians, we can take great comfort knowing that we will not be destroyed like Nadab and Abihu, even in the face of God's holiness, because we approach him through the moral perfection, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yet, these Old Testament texts were written for our instruction, 
And when we do take God's holiness seriously, a lot of wonderful things happen. Let me just point out a few. The first is this. Our appreciation for the gospel deepens. We recognize all the more how undeserving we are of grace in light of God's absolute perfection. We are humbled and our hearts are stirred afresh with love for the person and work of Jesus. We experience the joy of obedience. Sin really does make us miserable. If you've ever been in a pattern of sin, a hardened lifestyle of sin, which I personally have experienced, it's such a terrible time. It robs us of joy that, that we have when we're walking intimately with God. And a third, a third reason, our awe and reverence for God increases. We see him as beautiful and love him for himself. Knowing God better, we worship and live for him more fully. Now, there are some of you here today who are taking God's holiness and your sinfulness seriously and praise God, press on and excel still more. But others of you, including me, have done and thought things even this morning that you aren't proud of. And to hear about the holiness of God is causing you to search your soul in a good way, but it can also feel very discouraging because of how far you fall short. And perhaps for some of you, this is your first time at church, and you're hearing about all this, and honestly, it sounds a little crazy, but you know that something is not right between you and God. There is both a moral and personal distance. Wherever you're at, I encourage you to trust in a better priesthood. That's my third point. Trust in a better priesthood. After Nadab and Abihu die, Moses gives some interesting instructions in verses 4 through 7. In verses 4 through 5, instead of Aaron and his remaining two sons, who are priests, Eleazar and Ithmar, carrying Nadab and Abihu out of the sanctuary, their relatives... Mishael and Elzaphan carry them out instead. And in verses 6 and 7, Aaron and his sons are forbidden from mourning. Instead, Moses says, Let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled, but not them. So the question is, why couldn't these priests touch the dead bodies and mourn? Here's the reason. As priests, they were set apart. They were holy unto God and thus separate from everyone else. And because God is life itself, they as priests of God could not be associated with anything that had to do with death, which is the opposite of who God is. If these priests touched the dead bodies or mourned, they too would become unclean. We often forget that death is unnatural, while Disney's Lion King may tell us that death is just part of the circle of life, the Bible tells us that death entered the world because of sin. Why? Because sin severs our relationship with God. Impurity cannot exist with holy purity, evil with holy goodness. And so sin cuts us off from the source of life, who is God himself. Thus Aaron Eleazar and Ithmar, the priests, could not touch the dead bodies and could not mourn their fallen brothers. For to do so would, to be past the, would pass the impurity of sin and death onto them, polluting them so they could not offer pure service before God. 
As we can see, the priests were severely limited in their power and scope, even on a good day. And on a bad day, they were violating God's law and being consumed by the very fire of his presence. The Old Testament priests were meant to act as a human bridge between the rest of humanity and God. By cleansing themselves through ceremony and sacrifice and living differently, they could enter the presence of God and make peace between God and man through more ceremony and sacrifice. But this priest system had a big, big weakness, as we've learned, because those bridges between God and man were human. They were full of sin and weakness, easily polluted from without and from within. Now, knowing their Old Testament, knowing Leviticus, how do you think certain Jews felt when centuries later, a carpenter-turned-rabbi from Galilee enters the house of a man named Jairus in Mark 4, and there he sees a little girl lying in bed. And instead of recoiling in horror and swiftly exiting because he would make himself unclean, he goes to the edge of the bed and takes her lifeless hand, and he says, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, rise. And instead of becoming polluted with sin, life and power flows out of him so that, according to the text, immediately the girl got up and began walking. And what do you think people thought when this same man came to Bethany because his friend Lazarus had died and seeing the mourners and the sorrow of Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha, he wept. He wept and mourned the death of his friend, but he was not made unclean. Instead, he was deeply moved, stirred to anger, and he ordered the stone to be removed. He then cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus rises from the dead. Again, impurity was not passed to him, but the opposite. The ultimate uncleanness of death is made clean. Death becomes life. For this man is Jesus, who is uniquely qualified to be a better priest, because while he is human and intimately acquainted with our weakness, and so he can offer up prayers on our behalf, he is also God, now clothed permanently in humanity, but never polluted, always holy and pure, He is the great priest of a better priesthood, one that far exceeds that of Aaron and his sons. Whereas Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire and violated God's commandments, Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. And whereas Aaron and his sons could become involuntarily unclean by associating with death, Jesus voluntarily and willingly became unclean. He took on our pollutions, our sins, our rebellious deeds, and he knew death. He knew what it was like to be cut off from the Father as he hung there on the cross so that you and I could be clean forever, that we might have the presence of God forever, now in the person of the Holy Spirit and in the future in the fullness of the Trinity as he comes to dwell among us. The priesthood of Aaron and his sons could only offer the blood of goats and bulls. And even Aaron, the high priest, he himself 
had to repeatedly offer sacrifices for his own sins because he was too sinful. But Jesus, our true high priest, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, praise God. It is in Jesus that everything finds its resolution and solution. He solves the problem of the presence of God, consuming sinners by becoming the perfect high priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, who is the perfect bridge between God and man so that our relationship with holy God can never, ever, ever again be put into jeopardy. Listen to this. We will never become good priests of the world, priests who honor the transcendence of God by our holy living, and yet are full of compassion for the weak and needy if we do not first know our great high priest. And not just when we come to faith for the first time, but by daily coming to him and trusting in him and being reminded that he has transformed and empowered us to live holy lives, to be a royal priesthood. So trust in him in his ability to cleanse and forgive. Go to Jesus, who in the power of his blood can make things right between you and God. Look to Jesus, who can soften the hardness of your heart, who longs to renew and empower your desire to follow him faithfully all the days of your life. You can't live how God wants you to live on your own, and you're not supposed to. The story of Nadab and Abihu shows us our pervasive sin and God's great holiness, but also points to our true high priest who bridges the gap, who is our mediator, who didn't just risk his life daily in service to God as a priest did, but who gave up his life that we could become part of his priesthood. Our hearts need this even as we recognize our sin and take God's holiness seriously, or else we might only feel condemnation and discouragement. I've lived like that, and it's miserable. We need, we need to know our great high priest, because then we can have the zeal and encouragement to live all the more obediently. For we are not devastated to despair when we stumble and fall, for we plead the merits of our high priest's blood nor are we complacent because the holiness of God is being worked in us day by day as we become like our great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness yet was without sin. Let's pray. Father God, we come to this passage and It's sobering. It's sobering to think that without Jesus, just one of our sins in your presence would cause us to be utterly consumed, to fall down dead before you. And yet, 
for everyone here, God, you are showing grace even now by not consuming us. For those who don't know you, God, you are being patient with them. You are waiting for them to turn to you, to come to you in faith, to repent of their sins and to know you, the one who is full of life and joy and goodness. And for those of us who do know Christ, we thank you that you are consistently patient with us. You consistently don't look at the way we live, but you look at the way that Jesus has lived. And we thank you for that. Let that not be a reason to just live however we want, but let that be a reason to live all the more for you in confidence, in hope, not under the guilt of condemnation, under the weight of feeling like we're failures, but in courage, in power, in joy, because you have transformed us. You have made us new creations. We are not who we were. We are different. And you will complete the work that you have begun in us. We thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.